Hello, I want to welcome you to the Point Church Alberta Campus Sunday Preaching Podcast. My name is Josh Heisler and I'm the Alberta Campus Pastor. We strongly believe in the expositional preaching of God's Word, which works to build our faith and grow us up in Christ. Our prayer is that this message will be a help to you on your journey of faith. Now join us as we get to the point. If you got your Bibles, and I hope that you do, would you open them up to the Gospel of John chapter 12. John chapter 12. If you don't have a Bible, let me encourage you to grab one of the hardback black Bibles from under your chair. And if you're using one of those, you'll want to turn to page 899. Back in 2011, my family took a trip to Disney World. Um, But this was more than just like a family vacation. It was actually a family reunion. We were stationed over in Pensacola at the time, living there, and we had family coming from Washington and Virginia, from California and Arizona, all converging to celebrate Thanksgiving together and enjoy all of the parks that make up Disney World. Nearly a year in advance, I started working to make my reservations at Fort Wilderness Campground there. It's Disney's campground right there on the property. It it took a lot of work to get those reservations, but I finally got our reservation, and, and we planned this trip, but we didn't tell Katie and Kylie that we were going to Disneyland, and we didn't tell them that they were going to see all of their extended family. Instead, we just told them that we were going camping. They were seven and four at the time, and and I had it in my head. We were going to surprise the girls with a trip to Disney World. We were going to surprise the girls with a family reunion, and so we got it all figured out. We, We planned ahead of time the night before. We loaded up our travel trailer and got it all set, and after we put the girls to bed, we went and got all this stuff that Tama had ordered online and put it in the truck. It was all Disney-themed, right? So it was like stuffed animals and coloring books, and there was an autograph, Disney autograph books and Disney pens and the works. It was all Disney, and the the goal was we were going to put them in the truck, and they were going to connect the dots and figure out that they were going to go to Disney World, and, and we'd get one of those really awesome reactions, right? So, so the next morning, we get up, we get the girls dressed, and Tama's got Mickey Mouse t-shirts. I think Kylie was wearing a Minnie Mouse t-shirt. Like, it's everything Disney. And, and we get them all dressed up. We take them out to the truck. We put them into the truck. We, we buckle them in, and they look at all the stuff around them, and they go, okay, let's go. Like, like no reaction at all. None whatsoever. So, so we start talking to them, and we're like, maybe we can help them connect the dots. And so we're like, okay, girls, what does all of this have in common? What's it all got in common? Um, it's stuff to do on the drive to the campground. Like, like they just didn't get it at all. And I'm not going to lie. I, I was a little bit disappointed because like I've been watching all those videos online of like parents surprising their kids with, with Disney trips. And you know how it is, right? They like go nuts. They squeal at the top of their lungs. Windows are breaking and they're jumping up and down. And, and, and I was expecting that. And instead I got, okay, let's go. So, so, we're like, okay, we're going we're gonna to tell them. So we tell them, okay, we're going to Disney World. And we're going to see Papa and Grandma and all the rest of the family. And I'm thinking, as we're saying this, I'm thinking, finally, we're going to get that reaction. They're going to get excited. They're going to squeal. They're going to bounce up and down. Nothing. Nothing. They're like, okay, let's go. And I'm not going to lie. I was a little bit disappointed You see, I was expecting the reaction, and I didn't get it. And so even though we were on our way to Disney World for a week in the park, like seeing family, celebrating Thanksgiving together, even though all of that excitement was ahead of us, I was disappointed in that moment because the girls didn't live up to my expectations. 
Our expectations can shape how we see and process, how we interpret events in life. And as we get ready to celebrate Easter Sunday next week, as we pause today on Palm Sunday and we prepare for the week ahead, I want you to see that that's nothing new. Every year on Palm Sunday, Christians across the globe sit down and they celebrate the fact that Jesus made this triumphal entry into Jerusalem. But as we look at this text together, I want you to see that though though we have these expectations, they, they sometimes change our focus. So the goal today is going to be to see through these expectations, to see what really happened that day in Jerusalem, to see what made that day so triumphant. So hopefully you're there, John chapter 12. We're going to begin at verse 12. We're going to take it to verse 19. Hear the word of the Lord. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches and palm trees and went out to meet him, crying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, O daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, See that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father God, as we take the next few moments to really dig into this text here, we ask that you would help reset our expectations for the week ahead. We ask that you would help us to see past the expectations that we have of you and that we would see what you've actually come and done. Give us eyes to see, ears to hear, hearts to understand and receive this good news that we're going to find in our text today. Help it to shape how we go about the week ahead as we, as we celebrate this holy week, this last week that you walked on earth before you paid the ultimate price for our sin at the cross on Calvary. Speak to us now, Holy Spirit. We ask you to do this work that you say you'll do. We love you. It's in your beautiful name that we pray. Amen. This moment here that we just read about is one of only several events in, in the Bible that are covered in all four Gospels. This is one of just several events in Jesus's life that every single Gospel covers. So we read about it here in John, but we can also read about it in Matthew 21, in Mark 11, and in Luke 19. And that works to show us just how important this was, that all four evangelists said, you need to know that this event happened. There is triumph here as Jesus came into Jerusalem. But if we want to see why this was truly triumphant, then we need to see it through the right lens. You see, as Jesus came to the city that day, there were some different perspectives about who he was and what he was coming to do. And those perspectives helped to set expectations for him. The crowd that welcomed him had expectations. And the Pharisees who opposed him had expectations. And neither of those two groups 
were ready for what he was actually about to do. But the part of this that I find so interesting for us as we're looking at this text here and we're reading about this is that some of us will have the exact same expectations that they had. So today, what we're going to do is we're going to look at this event to see past those expectations, past the expectations of the crowd, past the expectations of the Pharisees, to see what Jesus himself was actually preparing to do. And as we do that, my prayer for you is, is that you'll have a new understanding and appreciation of just how triumphant that day was 2,000 years ago when the crowd shouted out, Hosanna. So as we begin to look at this text today, the, the first set of expectations we need to consider are those of the crowd. So, so take a look with me, beginning at verse 12. John writes, The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. The, the crowd that was meeting Jesus here, they were clearly expecting a king. And everything about their, their reaction tells us that. This crowd was made up of pilgrims who had come to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. And you need to understand that, that during Passover, the number of pilgrims coming to Jerusalem, we're not talking thousands. We're talking about millions of Jews who came to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. The Jewish historian Josephus recorded a, a Passover celebration that happened about 30 years after this one. And, and in his report, he said that there were over 2.7 million pilgrim Jews coming into Jerusalem. And that didn't count the non-Jews who were coming in, the foreigners. And even if those numbers are exaggerated, you get the idea. The city is packed with pilgrims coming to celebrate. And a large group of them came and welcomed Jesus as he arrived. This group, based on what we read down in verses 17 and 18, most likely came from Galilee. We know that because they had seen him at work. But more important than who this crowd was, I want you to look at what this large crowd did. Verse 13 says that they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him. And there's significance in the palm branch. You see, nearly 200 years before this event happened, Simon the Maccabee drove the Syrians out of Jerusalem. And, and when he did that, and they had this major victory, they celebrated with songs and waving palm branches. And, and from that day forward, the palm branch became a national symbol for Israel. That, it, it's like our American flag. Or, or really, like if you really want to understand what this is like, it's like, like taking, um, taking all of your Auburn gear, if you're an Auburn fan, and going to Bryant-Denny Stadium and coming into the stadium packed with, with Roll Tide fans, right? You got your Alabama fans there, but you're there in your Auburn jersey. You got the face paint on. You got the, the clown wig that's half blue and half orange. You got the giant foam finger, and you're waving it around in the middle of Bryant-Denny Stadium, right? You're, you're there, and you're making a statement, and, and that's what these guys are doing. To, to wave a palm branch in Roman-occupied Jerusalem is sending a message. And that's what these guys are doing. It, it, but it wasn't just their actions. Listen to what they said. They go out to meet Jesus as he's coming, waving palm branches, and they're crying out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. That, that word Hosanna, it literally means save now. It's a plea for help. It's a plea for rescue. 
And and as they connect that to Psalm 118, the, the psalm that we just read together, they're helping us to see what their expectations of Jesus were and what they thought he was coming to do. You see, Psalm 118, as I told you a few minutes ago, it's a Hallel psalm. It's a, a song of praise. It's a, it's a prayer that they would sing at, at Passover every year. But here they're taking it and they're applying it to Jesus as he's coming into the city. And, and this crowd of people, a large portion of them, whom came from Galilee, this, this crowd who had seen his miracles, this crowd who had heard his teachings, they're recognizing there's something special about Jesus. And they're thinking that maybe this is the guy. Maybe this is the guy who's going to come in and solve all of their problems. That's why they called him the king of Israel. The crowd was expecting an earthly king, a a Messiah who would free Israel from their Roman overlords, a Messiah who would right all of their wrongs in the world. They were looking at Jesus who who could do all these things. And they're thinking, what can he do for us? And if we skip down to verses 17 and 18, John tells us just that. Take a look. John says, The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. These these people meeting Jesus as he's entering into Jerusalem are are seeing this miracle worker. They're they're seeing this guy and they're they're thinking, this is the one who's going to come and set them free from their Roman oppressors. That's their expectation here. He was the one who was going to fix all of their problems. He would repel Rome. He would restore the dignity and grandeur of Israel. He would reestablish a united Israel. This was Jesus the fixer. And and I think sometimes that's our expectation of Jesus too. We see Jesus the fixer, Jesus the wise teacher. He's the one who tells us how to live a good life and, and live an honorable life. He's the one who came to solve all of our problems. He came to make us healthy. He came to bless us. And so we expect him to come and fix our problems, but nothing more. And the problem with that sort of expectation is that it misses out on everything that Jesus really is and everything that he actually came to do. We'll come back to that in a moment. I want you to see another set of expectations for Jesus here in our text. And that's the expectations of the Pharisees. So jump down to verse 19. John tells us all about Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. And then in verse 19, we see the Pharisees' reaction. He writes, So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Now, totally aside of that, I love the irony there. I love that they're like, Look at Jesus, the world's following after him. And that's what's going to happen because of how they respond. But that's a side note. The religious leaders of Israel looked at Jesus, and as far as they were concerned, they had a problem on their hands because they expected Jesus to be a political threat. The the situation in Jerusalem is tense because while the the Romans had allotted a certain amount of autonomy and authority to the Sanhedrin, all of that was predicated on their ability to keep the peace. 
Earlier in John chapter 11, after Jesus had raised Lazarus from the dead, he started to actually gain a pretty big following, and and that caught the Pharisees' attention. So flip back to John chapter 11, because verses 47 and 47 through 53, they, they tell us that. Take a look, John wrote, So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. And, and let me stop right there and, and, and ask you, are you seeing it now? Like, like they're looking at Jesus. They expected him to take away their power. They expected him to upset the status quo. So, so they came up with a plan. Keep reading, verse 49. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. There's some more of that irony. (laughs) Like he just said it, you guys, you don't know anything. It's better one guy dies than, than the whole nation perish. Like think about that for a minute. Anyway, back to the text. John tells us he did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation and not for the nation only but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Now, take that and come back to chapter 12. Jesus is coming into the city itself, and the population of the city has exploded due to Passover celebrations. And this crowd was forming around Jesus, celebrating his arrival. So all that the Pharisees could see as they're watching this happen is their expectations of who Jesus was, of what he was coming to do. They're seeing their expectations being fulfilled in Jesus. You see, for the Pharisees, Jesus was a threat. He was a threat to the status quo. He was going to increase Roman oppression. He was going to take away their power and authority. So the Pharisees, they wanted nothing to do with Jesus. And they wanted the people to have nothing to do with him too. And that's a lot of people today too. Some people today see Jesus the way the Pharisees saw Jesus. They expect that Jesus is going to take from them. He's going to take away our freedoms. He's going to take away our autonomy. He's going to keep us from living how we want to live. And so just like the Pharisees, we don't want him either. I'm going to let that hang there for a second. I want you to just think about that because there's one more perspective, one more set of expectations that we really need to consider from this passage. There are the expectations of the crowd. There's the expectations of the Pharisees. But I also want you to see Jesus's expectations. In verses 14 through 16, John tells us that as Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, fear not, O daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. So many times in the life and ministry of Jesus, his actions speak so much louder than his words. And this is one of those moments. Jesus is telling all of these people who he is and what he expected to accomplish just in the way he came to Jerusalem. 
The simple fact of the matter is that nearly all pilgrims came to Jerusalem on foot. In fact, we've got historical records that say that when you came to Jerusalem for Passover celebrations, you were expected to come on foot. But Jesus chose to ride a donkey. With all the crowds coming into the city for Passover, he could have slipped in. He could have just walked into the city and nobody would have noticed that he was there. But Jesus chose to send a message with how he arrived. Among a crowd of pilgrims on foot, Jesus riding on a donkey would have stood out. People would have seen him. He would have been noticed by everyone, and that is the point. The the crowds that came to him were were expecting an earthly Messiah. They were expecting an earthly king, a a prophet king, who, who would cast off their Roman oppressors. This was a warrior king that they were looking for, but that's not who Jesus is. That's not why Jesus came. And he wanted to show them that. So verse 14 tells us that Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it. Now, if you're familiar with all of the other gospel accounts, that that word in the Greek for found there, that leaves plenty of room for the fact that Jesus sent his disciples to go get that donkey and bring it to him. Jesus, whether he found it himself or his his donkeys or his his disciples found it for him, that's not the point. The, The point Here is the statement that Jesus is making by riding on that donkey. The symbolism of what he was doing is important. You see, the donkey was an animal of a man of peace. It would have been used by a priest or or, or a merchant or an eminent citizen, not a warrior king. The crowds, they were expecting the warrior king. The Pharisees, they were expecting the threat And Jesus is working to help them see past those expectations. So the end of verse 14, and then verse 15, we're told why he rode on that donkey. John said, and Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it. And then here it comes, just as it is written, fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, seated, sitting on a donkey's colt. John is giving us a little bit of his narrator's insight here. He, he knows some things that the, that the crowd at the time doesn't know, and he's telling us that. Do you see what he's doing is he's pointing to that Jesus sitting on that young donkey, and, and then he's pointing to Zechariah 9.9. And, and in those words, just as it is written, what, what Jesus is doing there is he's saying that that prophecy in Zechariah 9.9 was fulfilled by Jesus. I want you to see this, so turn in your Bibles back to Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. If you're using one of those pew Bibles, it'll be page 797. More than 500 years before this day that we're reading about here in John, Zechariah wrote this prophecy about this Messiah coming into Jerusalem. Listen to what he said. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And what John is telling us is that Zechariah was talking about Jesus. Zechariah is telling the people of Jerusalem. That's what, what is meant by the daughters of Zion. Zion, it's the hill in Jerusalem. So the daughters of Zion, it represents all of the people in Jerusalem. It represents Israel. And he's saying, hey guys, here he comes. This is your guy. And Jesus is showing us that he is that savior king. That's what Jesus is doing. That's what his actions are saying. 
Jesus was working to help the crowds and the Pharisees see past their expectations to see who he really was. He's saying, hey guys, for centuries, you've been looking for this Messiah. For centuries, you've been looking for this one who's going to save you. That's me. I'm here. I'm coming in. You've been waiting for me. Here I am. But my kingdom that I'm bringing in, it's it's not the kingdom you were expecting. It's going to be better. The the crowd was expecting an earthly king, a, a warrior king, a king that would restore Israel on the world stage. But Jesus isn't that kind of king. He's a humble king, a king of peace, a king who's come to restore all of mankind to their creator. He's an eternal king. That's why he was coming to Jerusalem. He was coming to Jerusalem to reconcile sinners to God. But look at Zechariah 9 again. Look at this again, because Zechariah, he's painting this picture and he's going to start kind of narrowly focused and then he's going to broaden this picture. So let's look at this again. And I want you to tell me, who is this picture talking about here? Verse nine, again, he says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation as he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Now, now tell me, who is that a picture of? It's Jesus, right? He's righteous. He has salvation. He's humble. He's arriving to Jerusalem on an animal of peace. But then look at verse 10. Because the prophet continues and the picture gets bigger. He says, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem and the battle bow shall be cut off. The king of peace is coming. And he's coming to cut off the instruments of war, chariots, war horses, battle bows. All of those instruments of war are meant to show us the destruction that is caused by sin. And he's putting an end to them. But but then the prophet keeps going in verse 10. And this is where it gets really good. He, He says, and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea, from the river to the ends of the earth. This king that's coming, that Zechariah talked about 500 years before Jesus fulfilled it. He's not coming just for Israel and praise God for that, right? Like he's, he's coming for us too, the whole earth. Jesus arrived at Jerusalem on Palm Sunday to bring peace to Israel. That, that word peace there in Zechariah, it's the Hebrew word shalom. It's a uniquely powerful peace. It's not the absence of hostility, but an uninterrupted, undisturbed peace. It's peace in all its fullness, in every aspect of life. It's the perfect, active peace of God. It's the peace that had been lost because of our sin. And Jesus had come to restore that peace between man and God. But it wasn't just peace for Israel. That's what I I just said, right? This is peace for all the nations, for all people. He came to Jerusalem to bring a peace that would spread from Jerusalem to to Judea, to Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And that's the expectation that Jesus had before him that day. Jesus had come to Jerusalem to reconcile sinners to God. And today, as we celebrate Palm Sunday, this, this day that we celebrate the beginning of Holy Week, my prayer is that you'll see that.
Now, what I want to do is go back to those other expectations for a minute. And I, and I want to show you something. The crowd was expecting Jesus the fixer. He's going to be the king who's going to fix all of their problems. He's going to repel Rome. He's going to restore the dignity and grandeur of Israel. He's going to reunite the kingdom. The crowd wanted, they, they expected Jesus to be their fixer. And the Pharisees expected Jesus to be a threat. He, he was going to threaten the status quo. He was going to increase Roman oppression. He was going to take away their power and authority. And so they wanted nothing to do with him. Eventually, because of that, they, they sought to silence him. They found somebody who would betray him. They, they crucified him. They killed him. They buried him, and they were done. All because they saw Jesus as a threat. And what we need to recognize today, church, as we're considering all of this, is that we can have both of those expectations and often at the exact same time. We expect Jesus the fixer. We, we want Jesus to come in and fix whatever problem we're dealing with at the time. Right, so, so we're looking for Jesus to come in and fix our job or fix our marriage, fix our kids, fix our financial position, fix whatever it is, like fill in the blank. We want Jesus to be the fixer. And at the exact same time, as we're asking for him to come fix our problems, we see that Jesus is a threat. We see him as a threat to our status quo. He's going to come into our life and he's going to take away our freedom. He's going to challenge us. He's going to take away our autonomy. He's going to keep us from living how we want to live. And so we either don't want enough from Jesus because we just want him to come into our life and fix our problem and that's it, or we don't give enough to Jesus because we want to maintain some control of our life. Or, or maybe it's both at the same time. We say, you know what, Jesus, I'm going to repent of my sin because I need you to fix this problem over here. But this over here, that's mine. I'm going to maintain control of that. I can be sovereign over that. You've got this. I've got this. And the problem is that doesn't work. That's not what it, Jesus came to do for us. We'll give our life to Jesus, but we won't let him be sovereign over everything. Not, not long ago, I, I heard a pastor explain it this way. He said, imagine that you have this dream house that you want to buy. Like it's everything you want it to be. You know, it's 3,000 square feet of Joanna Gaines perfection, right? It's everything you want. It's on the perfect plot of land that you want. It, it, it costs like $750,000 though. So you're never going to be able to afford it. Well, one day you see a for sale sign out in front of it. And so you go over and you walk through this house and you know you're never going to own it. It's beautiful. It's got those beams in the living room, you know, the, the really awesome ones. You're like, this is it. I I'm never going to have it, but this is it. This is my dream house. And the owner of that house who's selling it walks in and he says, you know what? I'm tired of dealing with the real estate market. It's just too much stress. I'm going to make a deal with you. I will sell this house to you for $100. It's your house, $100, one condition. Over in the living room, right there in the center of the house, in the, in the living room, up on one of those beams, there's a nail. I'll sell you this house for $100, but I get to maintain sovereign control over that nail. I get to do whatever I want with that nail. You hear that and you think, this is the deal. I'm going to get my dream house. It's only $100. So you're like, this, 
Here's a hundred bucks right here. You hand him the hundred dollars. He hands you the keys to the house. You move in and it's, it's everything you wanted it to be. You are living in your dream house for years. It's like awesome, like just everything. But then one year hunting season comes along and that man comes back. And he comes, comes into your house. He just walks right into the house, right, right into that living room. And he's got this deer carcass with him. And he looks up at that nail and he hangs that deer carcass on that nail. And then he walks out of the house. That moment, it's not a big deal, right? It's just a nail, just a deer. Maybe you throw a tarp underneath it. But he's got sovereign control of that deer. So, so you can't do anything. And after a week, it starts to smell. And now you can't go in the living room. After two or three weeks, the whole house reeks and your dream home is ruined. And it's the same thing for us. When we want Jesus to be the, the, the savior from our sins, but not the Lord of our life, it's, it's like hanging that nail in the middle of the house and putting a deer carcass on it. It's never gonna work out on our, in our, our favor, which is why Jesus came to be both a savior and a king, a savior and a Lord. You see, the Jesus who rode into Jerusalem 2,000 years ago is a king. He's just not the kind of king we were expecting. And because of the type of king that he actually is, his reign and his sovereignty are greater than we could possibly fathom. Jesus is a righteous king. He's a king of peace. And while it is true, it absolutely is true that Jesus is a fixer that Jesus absolutely can fix your marriage, that Jesus absolutely can fix your kids. He can fix your home. He, all of that is true. Jesus came to Jerusalem with so much more to offer. Jesus came to Jerusalem to save us from our sin. And so while it's also true that, that he's going to disrupt our lives at times, like, like you, you can't encounter Jesus and not have a reaction. There, there will be dis some disruption. He did not come to take away your freedom. We think that Jesus wants to take from us, but really he wants to give us the kind of freedom that we could never obtain for ourselves. You see, Jesus came to fix our ultimate problem, our sin. And when he fixes that ultimate problem, when he fixes our sin problem, he gives us the freedom that we could never otherwise obtain. Jesus was on a mission to reconcile sinners to God. He came to Jerusalem having lived the life that we couldn't live, expecting to die the death that we deserve to die. He was buried in a borrowed tomb. But on the third day, he rose in victory over sin and death. And if we will repent of our sin and place him as Lord of our life, put our faith in him to lead us through life. He will forgive our sins and he will give us his righteousness. That's what Jesus came to do that day. That first Palm Sunday was a day of expectations. The crowd had expectations. The Pharisees, they, they had expectations and both of them were off the mark. Both of them were wrong. The expectations that mattered that day were Jesus's expectations and praise God for that. He was coming with the expectation to die in order to give us life.
On Sunday, they celebrated. By Thursday, he had been betrayed. On Friday, he was dead and buried. But don't worry, because Sunday was coming. And on Sunday, he rose in victory over sin and death. We call this week Holy Week. We call it the Passion Week. It's a week that leads us to celebrate the most important day in history. So as as we go out of here this week, let's have the right expectations. Let's have the right focus as we think about the week ahead. The expectations that Jesus had. Thank you for listening to the preaching podcast from The Point Church. If you would like more information about our church, or if you have any questions, you can find us online at tothepoint.church.